It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Almost exactly a century ago, with a lot of help from the British, the state of Jordan was born. A hundred years ago, right now, Churchill and Abdullah hammered out a deal. The idea crystallised that perhaps they should put Abdullah in place in Jordan. But now, the Hashemite royal family in Jordan, a pillar of stability in the region, have found themselves in the middle of a family crisis, steeped in palace intrigue and foiled coup plots. How the drama between two royal brothers plays out could have major repercussions for the future of the country and the region. I think the public and the king realised that this could be the turning point, this could be the catalyst for change in Jordan. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Jordan, its very British history and a royal family feud. So when I actually saw the news, my first idea was that the news agency was hacked. (laughs) I swear, I I couldn't believe it. That's Jassar Al-Tahat, chief reporter at Jordan News and a contributor for The Times covering Jordanian affairs since 2018. And honestly, I didn't believe it until I actually saw it on the official TV as well. Political instability in Jordan just isn't a story you expect to see. As a journalist, Jordan hasn't been very generous with us uh, regarding news <laughs> or making the headlines. It's, it always has been uh, stable and secure. I used to live and work in the Middle East as a journalist, and we always used to call it the Hashemite kingdom of boredom. It was the only <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think to a certain extent it could be quite accurate. <laughs> it's the only place in the Middle East where nothing happens. Mm-hmm. Normally. That is very true. I mean, Jordan doesn't seem to get a lot of attention when it comes to international media. I wouldn't call it boring, but I would call it uh, lazy. Well, that's certainly changed a fortnight ago as news broke of a foiled coup attempt. Prince Hamza bin Hussein is the former Crown Prince of Jordan and a half-brother to King Abdullah. On Saturday evening, he was put under house arrest along with his family and members of staff. They are accused of plotting a coup to overthrow the king. In a video message, the king's half-brother sharply criticised Jordanian leaders, but he denied being part of an alleged coup plot. He says he's been ordered by the army's chief to stay at home and that his phone and internet are being cut off. Jordanian authorities have arrested several other high-level officials 
for what they describe as security. denies that the former crown prince himself is under arrest. But alarm bells are ringing for Jordan's allies, which see it as a key bastion of stability in the volatile region. I remember it very, very clearly what had happened. Uh, I mean, it was a Saturday night. I was about to finish my work, 9 p.m., putting my laptop in my bag and so on. And a colleague just grabbed me and said, check this out. And we looked and it was the official news agency with a very brief piece of news saying that Basim Awadallah and Sharif Hassan bin Zaid have been arrested, among others. Sharif Hassan bin Zaid is a distant member of the royal family, and Basim Awadallah is a former finance minister and a controversial figure in Jordan. He's not a very popular person because many people believe that he was the one responsible for Jordan economic privatization program. As a figure, he has always been associated with major corruption. But as the news broke in those first few moments, it wasn't yet clear why these two powerful men had been arrested. We ran a brief story, made a few phone calls. Everyone was a bit either hesitant to talk or didn't want to talk about it. And then, an hour later, Jassar began to hear rumors. That the prince was actually arrested as well. That must have been quite shocking. It was. International news agencies broke the news that Prince Hamza of Jordan was under house arrest. The government immediately issued a statement saying he wasn't, but then, at around 11pm, some leaked videos began to appear. I'm making this recording today to try to explain what's happened over the last few hours. We saw some videos on the BBC that the prince had leaked, saying that he was actually under house arrest and that he was ordered not to communicate with people. I had a visit from the chief of uh, the general staff of the Jordanian Armed Forces this morning, in which he informed me that I was not allowed to go out. Well, he looked distressed, he looked angry, he looked emotional to a certain extent. I am not the person responsible for the breakdown in governance, for the corruption, and for the incompetence that has been prevalent in our governing structure for the last 15 to 20 years, and has been getting worse by the year. And I remember in the background, he had a picture of his late father, King Hussein, who was a very popular figure in Jordan. He seemed very, very angry. And he was trying to respond. He wanted to reflect what was actually going on from his perspective. He felt accused of something and he was trying to fight back. And that, I think, to a certain extent, that resonated with many Jordanians. Their well-being has been put second by a ruling system that has decided that its personal interests, that its financial interests, that its corruption is more important than the lives and dignity and futures of the 10 million people that live here. Prince Hamza wasn't the only big arrest. A further 16 people have been held in connection with the alleged plot. Among the 16 is Basim Awadallah, the former chief of staff at Royal Court, the Sharif Hassan bin Zaid, uh, distant royal, and we know that Prince Hamza's chief of staff as well is, is also arrested, among others. It's still unclear. I mean, you hear news about this man getting arrested and this man getting arrested, but you don't know what, what their role was. Not only is it unusual, it's, it's quite unprecedented. For decades now, 
the royal family of Jordan has been seen as a pillar of stability. So to see such a public rift emerge made for jaw-dropping headlines. To actually see a former crown prince go on international media in that manner, saying what he said, it was clear that there has been a rift inside the palace. To understand just how unlikely this story seemed, it's worth introducing some of the main characters. The Hashemites are an influential royal family who can trace their ancestry back to the Prophet Muhammad. These days, they rule over Jordan. Abdullah II is the current king of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan, and his younger half-brother is Prince Hamza. Their father, the wildly popular King Hussein, ruled Jordan for nearly 50 years until his death in 1999. When King Hussein died, that was an emotional uh, moment for Jordanians. I mean, the people who took to the streets to take part in the funeral and so on were, were like hundreds of thousands of people. He was really loved. He was very, very popular among Jordanians. Over his lifetime, King Hussein married four times. His first son and heir to the throne was Abdullah, the current king. Prince Hamza was born many years later to King Hussein's fourth wife. But Prince Hamza was said to be the king's favourite. And to a certain extent, Prince Hamza was a reflection of him. The way he looks, the way he talks, the way he walks, the way he communicates with people, the way he communicates with the tribal figures. When King Hussein's first son, Abdullah, was very young, he was named the heir apparent, the crown prince, but not for long. At that time, King Hussein had had a few assassination attempts. So he was advised that he should put his elder brother, Prince Hassan, as crown prince. Back then, Prince Abdullah was, was just a child. He couldn't rule a country. And the constitution was amended to allow King Hassan to appoint his elder brother, Prince Hassan, as crown prince. Many years later, just two weeks before King Hussein died, there was a major shift in the line of succession, away from the brother and back to the sons. King Hussein relieved his brother, Prince Hassan, of his duties and made his first son, Abdullah, the crown prince again. But he went a step further. He stipulated that his favourite, the younger son, Prince Hamza, should be next in line to the throne. So when the king died, Abdullah was crowned the new king but his younger half-brother Hamza became the crown prince. But that was in 1999. But in 2004, five years later, Prince Hamza was relieved of his duties and now crown prince Al-Hussein bin Abdullah was appointed. So the new crown prince, Hussein bin Abdullah, is the eldest son of the current king. Wow. I mean... That must have gone down very badly with Prince Hamza, who was expecting to be king one day and is now suddenly being told that's just not going to happen. You could imagine. <laughs> you could imagine. The Jordanian public appear to have accepted the new crown prince. And also looked upon with a sense of trust. But again, I don't think the popularity would rise up to the level of Prince Hamza's. Have there sort of been signs of tensions between the two brothers in the past? At least none that were apparent to the public. Definitely not. 
Even after 2004 and even after Prince Hamza had been stripped of his title? Yeah, if there was any sort of disputes, if there was any sort of debacles or brawls between the two half-brothers, it wasn't apparent to the public at least. But there was a noticeable downgrade in Prince Hamza's role once he lost his title. He wasn't given a role. Unlike the other princes, you have a prince that had some sort of a sports union, another has some sort of an honorary role as well. But Prince Hamza wasn't given any. His activity was actually intentionally underreported or intentionally... Really? ...shadowed, sidelined, shelved. Yeah. For you, as a, as a, a journalist in Jordan, would you feel like you could cover whatever Prince Hamza was doing normally? I don't think so. Really? Yeah. I was supposed to have a dinner with him. I was invited to a dinner with him. That was uh, in January. Mm. I was very excited. I thought to myself that this should be interesting. I mean, how unusual is that for a start? I was pursuing a story uh, about Jordan involvement in Libya. And I was introduced to a man who I became acquainted with. We chit-chatted on like WhatsApp every once in a while. He would send me a piece of news. I'll send him my latest articles, things like that. Until one day, this contact asked Jassar if he'd like to have lunch with Prince Hamza. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? That would be interesting. And I just went back home and I was like, excited. This would be my first time meeting a prince. I never met a prince before. The next day he calls me and he says, sorry, the whole thing fell out. The lunch was cancelled. And I was like, oh, what a shame. I was excited. I was a bit disappointed. I'm not going to lie. That same source, the man who tried to set up a lunch between a journalist and Prince Hamza, has now been arrested as part of this alleged coup plot. I was sending him messages when, when this whole thing happened on WhatsApp. I was like, what do you make of this? What do you think? What did he say? First message went through. The rest didn't. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, he was never being responded. arrested at the time. <laughs> Probably. God, Probably. That's, that's quite something. It is, it is. Looking back now, have you wondered why he wanted to arrange a, a lunch with a, a journalist? He was walking me to the elevator when he first invited me. And he said, I want to introduce you to the prince so that in case something happened, you would have access. That's what he said. I didn't in make much of In case something happened. Then you would have access. And I didn't make much of that. I always knew that Prince Hamza was basically a very controversial figure in Jordan. And meeting with him probably wasn't the most wise, or the wisest decision that I would make as a journalist. Really? Yeah, it might put you under the spotlight. It might put you, you never know, uh, get like drag attention your way and, and something like that. But to be honest, I said, the hell with it. It, would, it should be an interesting conversation. So do you think they were planning some kind of a coup? The government, the prime minister, members of the parliament, to a certain extent, all media statements about this issue never mentioned the word coup. In fact... The Deputy Prime Minister, in a statement after the leaked videos were published, did a complicated verbal dance around the subject, calling it anything but a coup. He said plot, he said zero hour, but he never mentioned the word coup. But in my opinion, I think all of the elements are there. They spoke about external influence. They were collaborating with other powers. They spoke about activities and meetings happening and communications that were intercepted. And since the arrests for the alleged plot, Jordanian social media has lit up with theories and concern. Usually with these hashtags in, in Jordan, there's a public opinion case, it goes on social media, there's a major hashtag, everyone takes part in, in it. Three days later, it disappears. Mm. Four days later, it disappears, but not this time. 
this time it's had, it has been there, top top trending on Twitter at least for the past week, more, 10 days maybe. And what are the hashtags saying? Uh, Prince Hamza is an honorable free man. One, one hashtag read, the other read, where is Prince Hamza? That was before the first public appearance. Another one read, Anahar uh, ibn Abuy, which means I'm free, I'm my father's son. Despite the frenzied social media commentary, there is a reluctance in Jordan to speak too critically about the royal family. Jordan may have a reputation as a stable, peaceful nation, but critics of the king have faced prosecution in the past. On the day of the arrest, Jassar called many of the most powerful and influential people in the country to gauge the mood. I called many of former statesmen, ambassadors, ministers, foreign ministers, prime ministers, advisors, royal court chiefs, former chiefs of royal court. They all say the same thing. What happened today is a clear indication that change must be administered in Jordan. We must give space to to freedoms. We must give space to political engagement. We must um, allow proper representation of the people. Economic aspect must be revised. The mismanagement must stop. I wouldn't say that the king has lost his support, but I would say that I think the public and the king realized that this could be the catalyst for change in Jordan. One of the things that came out of the reporting around this plot was the idea that there were other countries who might have had a stake in it. Where are the fingers being pointed? It has been mentioned multiple times by officials that this conspiracy was also being coordinated with external factors, with other nations, basically. But they never named the name. It's still unclear why. And people are calling. One of the MPs asked, why aren't we calling them out as a country? We need to know so that we can take a stance against them. There's still a lack of solid evidence around the foreign interference aspect of this story. But rumours have been swirling in two very different directions. Firstly, westward, towards their neighbours in Israel. Jordan's relationship with Israel is at an all-time low. And the relationship between the king and Netanyahu hasn't been great in the past year or two. There has been many incidents where both didn't see eye to eye, blocked out loggerheads at some point. We had the Israeli embassy incident in Amman where two Jordanians were killed. And then we had the Dagomar and Baqura lands that was rented to Israel, but Jordan refused to renew that that lease, basically. Most recently, the Crown Prince visit to Jerusalem that basically the Israelis just disrupted. In return, Jordan didn't allow Netanyahu's plane to go over Jordanian airspace. Yeah, it has been quite tense between the two. And also, you could I could see it happening that that the Israeli prime minister would support such an idea that pressure or trouble in Jordan could benefit him. But there are other rumours too, favoured by many in Jordan, that the external forces that interfered were coming from Jordan's southern neighbours in Saudi Arabia. You can see the link between Basama Wadallah, who was serving as a king's special envoy to Saudi Arabia, and then he was relieved of his duties and he stayed close to MBS. And he's now one of the people who's been accused of being involved in this plot. Yes, 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 yes. He was the first name to be announced as one of the arrestees. 
Why would Saudi Arabia want to interfere in Jordan? What would the motive be? I think Jordan wasn't going along the intended path that Saudi Arabia saw for the region. With the war in Yemen, Jordan refused to take an active role with Saudi Arabia. And there has always been rumors about Saudi Arabia eyeing the custodianship over the holy sites in Jerusalem, which is something very, very close to the Hashemites. That is a very old source of tension. But it's more of a threat now, as in the last few years, Saudi foreign policy has become more hot-headed and unpredictable. You never know what, what will happen next. And it could have been wishful thinking to a certain extent. Maybe this would work. Just but sort of it, a crazy scheme. Exactly. That wouldn't exactly be unprecedented from Saudi Arabia. There was that moment in 2017 when the Saudis appeared to have kidnapped the Lebanese prime minister when he was visiting the country. And then, in 2018, there was the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Such an unexpected, to a certain extent, naive move. I don't see it coming from the Israelis. At least, that's my conviction of it. Tensions are clearly rising on all of Jordan's borders. But how did Britain contribute to them? We'll have more in just a moment on a tale of intrigue that goes back more than a century. Get to the heart of the stories that matter. Subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times today and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tensions between the Hashemite royal family in Jordan and their counterparts in Saudi Arabia go back a long way. And Britain's involvement is sometimes overlooked. But we did, in fact, play a very central role. Britain is 
connected so closely because of the Arab revolt that broke out in 1916. That's the historian James Barr, author of two books on imperial rivalry in the Middle East, A Line in the Sand and Lords of the Desert. We've asked him to give us a bit of a history lesson. A year or so earlier, Britain did a secret deal with a man called Sharif Hussein of Mecca. He ruled Mecca, but he was an important man. He claimed to be descended from Muhammad, and his phone number in Mecca was Mecca 1. So you get an idea of, <laughs> of, of what, he, what, what he was like. And he ruled the roost, yeah. He ruled the roost, and he was a rather obstinate, prickly man, but he also seemed quite biddable. And for that reason, the British quite liked him. They were looking for someone with enough spiritual and tribal clout to rise up against the Ottomans. And at the beginning of the First World War, the Sultan had called for a jihad against his enemies. And Britain had 100 million Muslims as subjects of the British Empire, and they were terrified at one point early in the war that there might be Muslim uprisings. So the British approached Sharif Hussein, the ruler of Mecca, with an offer. And this deal is really where the modern Hashemite kingdom of Jordan begins. But to understand exactly what was promised back then, you might want to open up a map. Go on, hit pause. We'll wait. The British High Commissioner in Cairo sent Sharif Hussein a series of letters, and these promised Hussein an empire which broadly encompassed the whole of the Arabian Peninsula, what is now Israel and Palestine, Syria and Lebanon and Iraq. So it stretched all the way up to the Turkish border in the north. But it was defined in a very, very cagey way. But the deal-making didn't end there. The French got wind that this promise had been made. And they then insisted that the British did a deal with them because they for historic reasons, wanted to reclaim bits of the Levant, particularly Lebanon, where they'd had a strong influence for centuries, but also Syria as well. And so in 1916, British made promise number two of three, and that was the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Now, you might have heard of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, named after the two men, one British, one French, who negotiated the secret treaty which would divide the Middle East between the two powers once the Ottoman Empire had fallen. They basically divided the Middle East, famously, from the words of Mark Sykes, who was the British negotiator, from the E of Acre to the last K of Kirkuk. And they split the Middle East along that line, and the French would get the territory north of that, and the British were going to get the area south. And the reason the British wanted that area, and this is very, very pertinent to how Jordan came into being, is that Sykes envisaged what he called a belt of English-controlled country across the Middle East. And the idea was to create a a cordon, if you like, that ran from Egypt, which the British had run since 1882, all the way to the Iranian frontier. And, And that would protect the approaches to India, which, of course, at that time was still part of the British Empire. Right. So for Britain, protecting a passage to India was vital, But they'd now made two promises, which couldn't both be kept. One to the French, and the other to Sharif Hussein of Mecca, who they needed for an uprising against the Ottomans, which would eventually help them win the First World War. And they thought they had done this in a very artful, weaselly worded, diplomatic way. Now, Sharif Hussein of Mecca was a powerful man, but Britain knew that a successful uprising 
would need to be backed by his four sons. Of whom two were credible candidates to lead the uprising. One of them was a man called Abdullah, and the other, his younger brother, was Faisal, who was a more impressive man in some ways. He looked the part. This is where the story becomes distinctly cinematic. For the man negotiating Britain's interests in the region at the time was one Lawrence of Arabia. I deem him one of the greatest beings alive in our time. We shall never see his like again. His name will live in history. It will live in the annals of war. It will live in the legends of Arabia. Who is he? T.E. Lawrence was a British archaeologist, army officer, diplomat and writer. Peter O'Toole as Lawrence of Arabia. His involvement in the Arab Revolt spawned a thousand myths and earned him the title of Lawrence of Arabia. He was the most extraordinary man I ever knew. He was a very great man. He was a poet, a scholar and a mighty warrior. The reality was a little different. T.E. Lawrence arrived in Arabia in late 1916 when the Arab revolt wasn't going as smoothly as Britain had hoped. Lawrence carved himself out a job, effectively, and his view of these two sons, Abdullah and Faisal, is absolutely crucial to what happened because he and Abdullah did not get on and he and Faisal did. Reports written by Lawrence at the time make that very clear. He sent back to to Cairo a very disobliging report about Abdullah, describing an incident which he'd not seen, but which has become famous, of where Abdullah got uh, one of his servants to balance a teapot on his head so that he could shoot at it with a pistol. And and so the idea was... Target practice? Target practice, sort of, but japes, I suppose you might say. That report wasn't just idle gossip, it was strategy. Lawrence, resentful of the French, wanted to make a claim to Syria. But Abdullah was more interested in Yemen in the south. Which, of course, was also fabulously fertile. But Faisal, on the other hand, was on the same wavelength as Lawrence. He was looking north. He had got contacts in Damascus. Lawrence famously said that he was the man who had the flame of enthusiasm that would set the desert on fire. So he created the idea that Faisal would be the right man to back. But in private, he was very cynical about it. Lawrence attached himself like a limpet uh, (sighs) to Faisal. He acted as the sort of the filter. So everything came through Lawrence, and Lawrence would then choose what to tell Faisal and, and essentially how to steer him. As the First World War came to an end, the Arab Revolt had succeeded in ousting the Ottomans. But by now, Britain had managed to make a total of three promises that would shape the future of the region profoundly. They promised uh, an empire to Hussein. They promised this kind of triangle of territory to France. But they'd made a third promise as well to the Jews in 1917. The Balfour Declaration said that Britain would support the creation of a national home in Palestine. And at the end of the war, the British were forced to confront the fact that these three promises were not all reconcilable with each other. And they thought when they made them that they'd never really have to honour all of them anyhow. They thought that the one to the Arabs was just a bit of sort of a diplomatic sticking plaster. The one to the French probably mattered more, but it was really an ad hoc measure they'd had to make to avoid a bust up with their ally. 
And the one to the Jews, well, that that sort of reflected, frankly, our level of anti-Semitism in Britain at that time, where the Jews were thought to be incredibly powerful people. And this was seen as a way of appealing to this sort of diaspora of Jews around the world and getting their support. So at the end of the war, the British had to think, well, what are we going to do about this? And they ended up essentially letting the Arabs down. And they honoured the promise to the French because they thought that another war would happen at some point. And they wanted to take control of Palestine. And using the Jews to do that seemed to be the best way. And this was in line with this strategic idea of controlling a cordon of territory across the Middle East. But things didn't go according to plan. The situation in Palestine rapidly deteriorated. Faisal had reached Syria, but was very quickly booted out again. And then there was a revolt in Iraq, which was, at the time, under British control. And Churchill was put in charge of this mess as Secretary of State for the colonies and told to sort it out and try to save money. So the British came up with quite a clever plan, or at least what they thought was a clever plan. Now that Faisal had no job, they thought they would put him on the throne of Iraq. And then there was the question about what to do about the situation in Palestine. And by the end of 1920, the British had started to think, well, perhaps we just split it into two. They created a largely Arab zone in the east and a home for the Jewish population in the west. That separation, the original template for a two-state solution, continues to haunt the Middle East to this day. And there was a further idea for doing this, and this is what put the British under real pressure. And that was that Abdullah, the the man who enjoyed shooting teapots off people's heads. (laughs) The older brother. The responsible elder brother had advanced into what is now, what we would now say is Jordan. And he was making menacing noises towards the French, saying that, well, you know, they had kicked out his brother and he was planning to to invade Syria. Syria. And of course, Jordan was sort of under British control. So this was very, very awkward for the British because the the French were pointing at them and saying, you sort this out. This is your problem. And the British were saying, well, you fought well, they didn't have the resources to sort it out. And so the idea crystallised that perhaps they should put Abdullah in place in Jordan. And in 1921, that is exactly what happened. A hundred years ago, right now, Churchill made a trip to Cairo. He held a conference there. Famously, it was attended by lots and lots of British officials, but also two lion cubs turned up. (laughs) Were they invited? They were invited. The lion cubs, one of those strange footnotes in history were just passing through on their way to London Zoo. The conference sat for about a week and a half. Lawrence was there. He described it as the hardest fortnight he'd ever worked. And in the way of these things, the results had sort of been pre-cooked. And what happened there was that Britain essentially decided that it would put Faisal on the throne of Iraq, and it would then run a rather dubious referendum in Iraq to test public opinion and show that there was support for for Faisal. And that was Faisal on the the throne there. But that still left the question of what to do in Jordan. And that is where Abdullah came in. And what Churchill did was after Cairo, he took the train from Cairo up to Gaza. And Churchill and Abdullah hammered out a deal. The deal involved Abdullah getting a six-month lease on Jordan, subject to good behaviour. Essentially, the idea was to defuse the crisis, stop him going any further north, stop there being some sort of war with the French that the British would get dragged into. And it worked. And so Abdullah became the emir of Transjordan. And and that is what he was until he became king in 1946. So 
Churchill is responsible for the Hashemite royal family of Jordan. He's responsible for a lot of things. Britain was a really important sponsor of Jordan for that period of time. Britain supported the Hashemite family because they'd helped to fight the Ottomans in the Arab uprising, helping us to win the First World War. But also because of the family's connection to Mecca, the Hashemites could plausibly claim direct descent from the Prophet Muhammad. That gave them social, political and spiritual clout to win support across the region. And it made it easier for Britain to install them as rulers all over the Middle East. The Mecca connection was perhaps the most important thing. The family had always lived there. They were very closely associated with that part of the world. And, you know, that gave them a considerable renown around the Muslim world. There has been a long-running enmity between the Saudis and the Hashemites generally, and therefore the Jordanians as part of the Hashemite family. After the First World War, Ibn Saud, who was the founder of Saudi Arabia and its first king, decided that he would try and take over the Hejaz, which was the the area of Western Arabia where Mecca and Medina are, and which, of course, at that point was run by Sharif Hussein of Mecca. Britain had previously backed both sides of the clash and decided not to intervene to protect Sharif Hussein of Mecca. The problem for Hussein was that he had not made himself popular. Because of his rather truculent approach to international relations in general, the British found it far more easy to deal with his sons than they did with him. And so when actually push came to shove, they weren't prepared to back Sharif Hussein. And so Ibn Saud took over the Hejaz, and then he started looking northwards. Eventually, the Americans intervened, convincing Saudi Arabia that it was unwise to poke at a neighbouring kingdom. But the Saudis continued to interfere in Jordanian politics for years to come. And the British, likewise, were using the Hashemites potentially to interfere in Saudi. The relationship between Britain and Jordan has gone through various phases since then. It was very strong through the first 30 years when Abdullah really was effectively a British client. Later on, he kind of came up with this idea that he would rule a greater Syria. And through the late 1940s, the British who were who were looking to sort of try and find a a sort of way to hang on in the Middle East thought this was quite a clever idea. And so at that point, Abdullah became known as Mr. Bevin's little king, Mr. Bevin being Ernest Bevin, who was the British Foreign Secretary after the war. And Abdullah was his little king because he was a very short man. That plan never came to fruition. And King Abdullah was eventually assassinated in 1951. His son, Talal, sadly, uh, was mentally ill and he ended up in a sanatorium. And so it was Hussein, his grandson, who became king. That's the same King Hussein, who was the father of the current king and Prince Hamza. Over the years, a century on, relations between Britain and the ruling Hashemite family have remained remarkably strong. It's a personal relationship, if you like. It is based on our relationship with the monarchy. If the monarchy collapsed, I'm not quite sure whether we'd be in the same position, but it's there and it goes back a long way. It's a century of close history now, and that does count for stuff. History does matter for this relationship in this part of the world. A century of history between Britain and Jordan, the country it helped to establish. In Jordan... That centennial has just been lavishly marked, with holiday celebrations only just drawing to a close. The kingdom celebrates the centennial 
anniversary of the foundation of the Jordanian state. Abdullah laid a wreath at the tomb of unknown soldier and marched at St. Martyr's Square. I was at the office watching the TVs. Marking the centennial was the king visiting some landmarks and some historic monuments. That's Jassar al-Tahat again, a contributor to the Times. We see all of the main princes walking alongside each other. And at the back of the pack, despite his alleged house arrest, was Prince Hamza. It was unexpected. I was clear that everything wasn't back to normal. Even if you take a picture together, things are not back into normal. The first public appearance between the half-brothers who were just caught in front of everybody having a boys' fight. It's still not clear what lies ahead for Prince Hamza. You can't keep him in house arrest. That will turn him into a captive. That might turn him into a hero in people's eyes. It's a very tricky situation. I can't expect or anticipate how how this situation will continue, but just pretending like nothing happened and maybe people will forget about it, I don't think that's going to happen, at least not anytime soon. The situation is bad. I mean, COVID-19 had a huge impact on Jordan. Unemployment stands at, according to official numbers, 20, 25%, nearly 25%. But most experts would, would say that it stands at around 30 or 35%. Poverty is on the rise. Unemployment is on the rise. And people just seem to be under a lot of pressure. People are angry. People are mad. With tensions rising, Jordan is becoming a tinderbox, the perfect backdrop for an attempted coup. But whether it would have worked is another matter. And how about for you, personally, Mm. as a Jordanian as well as a journalist? I mean, how do you feel about the situation? Are you worried? Am I worried? I've always been worried in Jordan. To me, at least, it always seemed extremely fragile. Whenever something big happens and you always think, this is it, this could be uh, what stirs things up. But somehow the country always seems to push on, you know, survive. I think this will have major repercussions, internally and externally, in the sense that what the prince said, as I said, resonated with people, and I think they will demand action. I think this provided a clear indication of the view of the public. They're not happy. Happy is one thing and pleased is one thing, but being hungry is another, you know, when you can't provide food for the family because of the economic situation, because COVID had laid its, its, its harsher side on the economy. And so... Yeah, I think it's still brewing. Hmm. I don't think this is over. Not so boring anyway. It has been exciting, I'll tell you that. And it's probably not over yet. And it's probably not over yet, yeah. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Jasara Altahat, contributor at The Times and chief reporter at Jordan News Daily. You can read more of Jassar's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print. You also heard from James Barr, historian and author of A Line in the Sand and Lords of the Desert. The producer today was Leona Hamid. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. And sound design was by Gareth Isles. If there's a story that you'd like us to look into, any ideas for future episodes, or if you have any thoughts on what you've just heard, then please do send us an email to stories of our times at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.